A long time afterward, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, and Joshua was old and well advanced in years, Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders and heads, its judges and officers, and said to them, I am now old and well advanced in years. And you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake, for it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes those nations that remain, along with all the nations that I have already cut off from the Jordan to the great sea in the west. Anytime the Bible references the great sea, that is a reference to what we would call the Mediterranean Sea. The Lord your God, verse 5, will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight, and you shall possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. Therefore, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you, or make mention of the names of their gods, or swear by them, or serve them, or bow down to them. But you shall cling to the Lord your God, just as you have done to this day. For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations. And as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised you. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you, and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. But they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes, until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. And now... I am about to go the way of all the earth, and you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. But just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things until he has destroyed you from off this good land that the Lord your God has given you, if you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and you shall perish quickly from off the good land that he has given you. One of the great first moments of statesmanship in the American Republic came after George Washington's second term, when he voluntarily chose not to run for the presidency, there were no rules against that at that time, and he gave his farewell address, which is one of the great speeches that we remember from our early American history. And it's very similar to this speech that Joshua is giving. In the same way, this was a general who had risen to become a ruler and a leader of the people, who was going back to, as Washington said, his own vine and his own fig tree, which was a biblical phrase, and was giving some parting words of wisdom as he allowed the people to move on into the new nation that God had given them. And if you read Washington's farewell address, a lot of it is advice that you kind of wish we would have heeded. He warned against partisan infighting. He said, I can see it already. Y'all are going to be at each other's throats. That's the biggest issue over there in Europe. Let's not do that here. Of course, 
It did not happen, did it? He also warned us against getting involved in foreign wars and foreign entanglements and not being spread all over the globe so that your interests can be pushed and pressed. Just be happy in the nation that God has given you. And you may have varied opinions on that, but I don't think there's anybody in this room that would read that and think anything other than, if only we'd listened. (laughs) If only we'd at least done some of this. Times change, situations change, crises arise, obviously. But in general, the principles that Washington gave us were ones that we ought to have followed. And it's the same thing for the life of Israel. If they would simply follow the things that he was telling them to do, far more important than recommendations about neutrality, for example, then it would have gone much better for them. The book of Judges is going to be the example of them doing the exact opposite of everything Joshua asked them to do. For this is the end of the life of Joshua. The end of the words of Joshua, and of course, the end of the book of Joshua, who was the great commander of Israel. And in this speech, he begins by reminding them of everything that God has done, every promise that has come true. He reminds them, not one word has fallen through the ground. So if you go back and you look at everything that God has set up to this point, not one thing has failed. All the promises had come true. They were no longer slaves in Egypt. The generation that was taking possession of the land now, many of them had not even known slavery in Egypt. They were born in the wilderness. The war had been won. Children were being raised. This is about 25 years after the end of the conquest. So there were children that had been born and grown and been married and perhaps even had children of their own after the conquest was over. God's promise had come to pass and the promised land was no longer the promised land. It, was, it would then and forever be known as the land of Israel. So then Joshua a couple times is a very strong therefore, which means in light of everything I just said, keep the law, serve the Lord so that these blessings that you are enjoying right now might continue. The old man is telling a new generation, you're enjoying all of these good things. This is why, and here's what you must do in order to keep it. The alternative would be for them to assimilate with the Canaanites, to not maintain their distinction of the other tribes as they work to drive them out, and also to begin to worship the gods that were the idols that were in place in the land of Canaan. He says, if you go after them, you're not special. You'll face the same fate. This is one of the, and in fact, maybe the strongest passage in the Bible on the choice that man must make, either to serve the Lord or to reject him. However you want to theologize it, I'm not very much interested in that right now. What is plain is that every man must make a decision to serve the Lord. You make it at first The moment you are saved, when you are born again, you say, I'm going to follow Jesus. But then also daily, every single day, you've got to renew that commitment. The New Testament equivalent of this would be 2 Peter 2, verses 10 through 11, when the great apostle said, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. The older translations, make sure your calling and election. Some people will say, well, we don't have anything to do with our calling and election. Well, we have something to do with it. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter, in the Petrine epistles, loves to talk about salvation as a future event. Now, we know 
you have been saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. Peter just loves to emphasize that future aspect. He pretty much says, if you want to go to heaven, keep walking with Jesus. Same thing John would say, abide with him. Same thing that Joshua would say here, make the right choice. This is the great theme of the early books of the, of the Old Testament. There definitely is a transition, especially at the end of Numbers into Deuteronomy and Joshua, where the theme is, okay, we're almost there, what are you going to do? The theme of Joshua, you might say here, is it will go better for you if you choose to serve the Lord. And that is still true for us today. So let's get into chapter 24. He, it says he gathers them again in this chapter. So I, I, would, I would think that these are the same gathering. Maybe he's saying them to two different groups of people. Maybe it's just a poetic way of putting it. But let's pick up in chapter 24, verse 1. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem, Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel. And they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Note very carefully, Joshua opens with a prophetic utterance. Joshua is not just a commander, not just a general and a leader. He was a prophet as well. That's why this book is included among the prophets, the way that the Jews organized their Bible. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river, the Euphrates River, and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt." And I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it, and afterward I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians, and made the sea come upon them and cover them, and your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. And you lived in the wilderness a long time. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites, who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you, and I gave them into your hand, and you took possession of their land, and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel, and he sent and invited Balaam, Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. And indeed, he blessed you. So I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho. And the leaders of Jericho fought against you. And also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And I gave them into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow, I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. So Joshua has gathered the people to Shechem. Little personal note, my little sister Whitney, when we were real little, used to call me Shechem. And nobody in our family has any idea why. But apparently this name stuck out to her when she was reading her Bible one time. So I always think of that. But Shechem or Shechem is how you'd pronounce it. This was a good place for Joshua to do this. 
You might think, why Shechem? Why would he go there? Well, if you go back to Genesis chapter 12, when God told Abraham to leave his fathers and go into the promised land, go to the land that I'll show you, the next time God spoke to him is in Genesis 12, verses 6 through 7, where it says, Avram, Abram, his name at the time, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. So do you see why Shechem matters? God told Abraham back in the city of Ur to go to the promised land. When he got there, it was at Shechem that the Lord appeared and said, look around, I'm going to give your people this land. So Joshua, as he comes to the end of his life, gathers the people that are now dwelling in that land back to the place where God first met with Abraham and confirmed that promise. The place is Shechem. It could very well be they were worshiping at the same altar that Abraham had built, although it does not say that specifically. And he gives them a history lesson. It's a good place for a history lesson. And we've been teaching verse by verse through the, through the Bible, through the Old Testament, starting at Genesis 1-1. And we've seen all of these stories. He discusses the call of Abraham, noting that Abraham was not a worshiper of the Lord. He was an idolater. Both of the cities that we see Abram in before he comes to Canaan, Ur and Haran, were both known for the worship of the moon goddess. So Abram was an idolater until the Lord appeared to him, very much like Saul on the road to Damascus and said, you're going to serve me now. Perhaps he saw a certain sincerity in the heart of Abraham. Or it could just be the Lord picked somebody because he can. And that's good enough for me. Abram, of course, had trouble having children with his wife, Sarah, until Isaac was born, the promised child, Yitzchak, which means laughter, the child of laughter. He also had trouble conceiving until the Lord gave his wife twins, Esau and Jacob. And Jacob had his name after a long journey, and a lot of trouble changed to what? Israel. Israel. So whenever we say the children of Israel, that's not just poetry like we would say we're the children of America. Israel is a name of a person, Jacob. So the children of Jacob, when we say the children of Israel. Now, Jacob's, or Israel's, son Joseph was his favorite but we know what happened to Joseph. His brothers were jealous and they sold him into slavery and he went off to Egypt. He thrived in Egypt. He worked hard. He served the Lord and God raised him up, even though he got knocked down time and time again. He ended up becoming the second in command of the land of Egypt until there was a famine in the land of Canaan. God had warned jo Pharaoh, actually, but Joseph interpreted the dreams of what was coming and they had been able to prepare for the famine. So, the brothers of, of, Jake, of Joseph, the sons of Jacob living in Canaan, said they've got grain in Egypt, go buy some grain. Little did they know they were buying for their, from their brother whom they had sold. And what ended up happening is the family was reunited. Joseph said, bring everybody to Egypt. I've got influence here. I'll set y'all up in the land of Goshen. Nobody will bother you because they hate shepherds and you can, you can live there. That's what it says. Go back and read it. It says, everyone who is a shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. They see it as a dirty job. They don't want anything to do with it. Well, we pick up the story a couple hundred years later when the children of Israel are now enslaved 
in the land of Egypt. History tells us that there was a dynasty for a short time in the land of Egypt called the Hyksos kings. And the Hyksos kings were Semitic in their ethnic origin, meaning they were more related to the Israelites than the Egyptians were. Now, when that dynasty fell, as far as we can tell, this is one historical construction that I happen to favor, is the king said, all right, no more. We are never letting these people take control of us again. And that led to the enslavement of the Israelites. You can read this when they say things like, we've got to suppress their birth rate, otherwise they'll turn against us and they'll rule over us. But they oppressed and afflicted the people until there was a man born named Moshe, or as we call him, Moses. And his parents hid him in the river. It's not like the movies where they like, you know, set him adrift on the Nile River. They hid him in the papyrus reeds during the day while mama was working so that nobody would come and take him away until Pharaoh's daughter found him and said, I'm going to raise this baby boy as my own. And she did. Now Moses reaches a point in his life where he says, yeah, you're right. I should be the deliverer of these people. I'm like Spartacus, baby. I'm going to spark a slave rebellion and I'm going to take over Egypt. Well, that didn't work out. He killed an Egyptian, but the Jews weren't having it. Hebrews didn't want him for their king, so Moses flees into the wilderness for 40 years until God appears in a burning bush and says, you're going to go back and you are going to be my guy now that you're 80 years old and hopefully some of that young pride has been beaten out of you on the backside of the desert. Well, he goes back and he and Aaron, you know the story, where the voice of the Lord, let my people go. Let them go and serve the Lord in the wilderness. I'm going to lead you back to that land of milk and honey that we left behind all those centuries ago. And God hardened Pharaoh's heart so that there were 10 plagues that fell upon Egypt. Until finally Pharaoh says, get out of here, run, get out. I don't want you here, just, just get out. And the people ran for it. If you read that very carefully, they ran. They didn't have time to let their bread rise. They packed it up into their, their knapsacks with them and they left because the Egyptians were going to be chasing after them. They arrived at the Red Sea, as Joshua reminded them. Where are we going to go, Moses? And God parted the waters, and they walked through the seas. And when Egypt tried to follow them, I don't know why, you ever wonder why they tried that? Yes, they were angry, I suppose, but there, the waters came back together and drowned them, and Israel was free. They get the law at the mountain of Sinai. They receive the designs for the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant. They go up to the promised land, and they refuse to go in. They said, nope, too dangerous, too scary, too bad. Let's kill Moses and go back to Egypt. Until the Lord intervened and said, no, you're not going back. You're going to spend 40 years wandering in the desert until a better generation comes along. And after that time was done, the better generation had come along. They wiped out those two giant kings on the eastern side of the Jordan River, Sihon and Og, and took possession of that land. And then when Moses died, they went into the promised land, the crossing through the dry ground in the Jordan River. They marched around Jericho until it fell down, and they conquered every city they came against until last week, as we saw, Joshua was just handing out portions of the promised land. That's the story. It's a good story. You know most of it. But you might have noticed something different about the way Joshua told it than the way I told it. Go back and read it again. Joshua left out every negative part of the story. He says, you wandered in the wilderness a long time. That's skipping over an awful lot of messed up stories. Because <laughs> what is he trying to do? He's trying to remind them of every victory, every blessing, every good thing that has come their way and to show them Every good thing that you have has come from the Lord your God. 
Psalm 103 verse 2 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. When you receive a blessing from the Lord, you think there's no way I'll ever forget this. But we've got to be reminded because the devil loves to convince us that there is good out there somewhere else. Yeah, you've had blessings following the Lord, but those things would have come anyway. You would have gotten over that sickness anyway. You would have met that woman anyway. You would have been able to come up with the money anyway. So what do you need Jesus for? But that's a lie, and we all know it's a lie. That's why Joshua has to remind them. He's telling these young kids, uh, some of them, of course, there would have been older people as well. He's like, don't think that this is just normal. This is what you are enjoying comes at the very end of a long train of incredible miracles. And that's what your life is too, and so is mine. I look back on my life. <laughs> every valley was rebellion, and every mountaintop was obedience. When I was kicking against the goads, as God said to Paul, things didn't go very well. But the minute I began to submit to the Lord, that's when God stepped in. You look at the life of this church. Is there anything that we can take credit for, for what God has done here? I'm surprised. I step back and look at things. I'm still amazed what the simple teaching of the Word can do. You sit there and you talk to somebody face to face for hours and you don't get anywhere, but just let somebody sit and hear the preaching of God's Word. And it's like, man, it's just slowly getting worked out. I'm learning to trust that more. Even through history. I'll give you an example. Everybody loves to denounce the Victorian era of English history because they say that's when they were the most religious and they were the most hypocritical and they were so bigoted and, and all, all these things. And even Christians get into that, which is really a shame that it is that way. But shall we put it this way? Victoria, the queen, ruled more territory on the earth than anybody else who had ever lived. So let's put it this way. At their most Christian, the sun never set on the British Empire. And the minute they began to dismantle it, it all fell off. Why? Because God is not mocked. You honor God and he'll honor you. Look at your life. Isn't that true? God takes good care of his people. Have you ever truly regretted doing what God said? Now leave aside the sulking that you might do. Like you, you, you say, I really shouldn't, I shouldn't be messing around with that girl. But then you see, you know, a picture of her somewhere and you go, man. Lord, why do you have to make that rule? And what's the point of following Jesus anyway? Or you see somebody that you know who's a little shady in their business, but they're getting ahead, man. They're moving forward. And you're like, Lord, I'm trying to do the right thing. Or for my part, you see some you know, skeevy, like sleazy televangelist guy whose church is just blowing up and they're not teaching the word. They're not even pretending to teach the word. And they're stealing money from people. And there's all kinds of scandal and sin. And it's like, Lord, are you forwarding my mail? Because I've been praying for that kind of reach and the church to grow. Leave that aside. Because that's, that's you at your worst, right? Let's just leave that aside. You ever been re regretful that you were honest? Why did I tell the truth? Come to the end of your life. Sir, what do you wish you had done in your life? Any regrets? I wish I'd lied more. You ever regretted loving somebody? You might in the minute, but in the long term, have you ever really regretted that? Or are you, have you ever looked back and said, I'm so glad I showed love to that person even though they threw it in my face because now my conscience is clear, but that day's living rent-free in their head for the rest of their life. You ever regretted being self-controlled once you calm down? Oh, thank you, Lord. Thank you that I did not give in to that temptation. 
Thank you, I did not go out with those guys. I told you, and this is something that's not even a temptation for me, but my first day on the job, at a, one of the jobs I had, we were finishing up, and I was invited, hey man, we're going out to the strip, the strip club, you want to come? I want to see what a pastor looks like when, we, when you go to one of these places, and I can't obviously repeat most of what they said. But, you know, I wasn't tempted to do that, but what if I had said, well, you know, it's real, Jesus was friends with sinners, and it would be good to go out and get to know some, see, you see the tension in the room, you don't even like me joking about that, right? I don't regret being self-controlled, or being patient. Nobody regrets patience. You regret flying off the handle, don't you? To our main point tonight, it will go better for you if you serve the Lord. So let me remind you, that has always been the case for you. When things have gone good for you, it has been when you are serving Jesus. And when you are failing to serve Jesus and you start to kind of go halvesies, that's when it starts to falter. And then what the devil does is see it's God's fault. You know, when I'm serving Jesus, things go good. Now we introduce sin. Uh-oh, things are wobbling. That's Jesus' fault. No, you just introduced sin. That's the problem. Be grateful and remember what God has done. Because we get to verse 14 and Joshua's got a big therefore, meaning in light of that whole story I just reminded you of. Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now, therefore, he says, since the Lord has only ever been good to you, we sang tonight about too good to not believe. And if you don't know, we tweaked the lyrics of that great testimony song so that the testimony parts we sing are things that our church has seen. Yeah. You look back on that and you go, after all that, serve the Lord. Make the right choice. You've got a choice. Choose you this day, but choose the right one. Yeah. It seems from this section, they were still indulging in Egyptian and Amorite idolatry, even now. In addition to their worship of the Lord. And he tells them, you've been serving God. I'm not faulting you for that. But this old man Joshua. Yeah, I picture him with those big old knuckles like holding on to one of those staffs. Like, don't lie to me, friends. I know what you've got tucked away in those saddlebags. I know what's behind that curtain in that tent that you don't let other people open up. I know what you do when you go out with the boys. I know which temples you're frequenting. He calls them out. Not just their deception. That's not really what he's after. He's after their delusion that they think they can have it both ways. He's like, I know what you're doing. Don't try to lie to me. I'm here to tell you as a prophet of the Lord, as the hero of your nation and your faith, you can't have it that way. And this is constantly what the prophets of the Old Testament were trying to do, is to tell the people you cannot have it both ways. You think of Elijah on Mount Carmel. Jezebel, Queen Jezebel had introduced idolatry into the land of Egypt on a national official scale. And there's Elijah on Mount Carmel after years of famine. And he says in 1 Kings 18, 21, how long will you go on limping between two opinions? Don't you like how the ESV gives you that literal translation there? Limping, right? You don't quite know where to put your weight. You don't know what you're standing on. Limping between two different opinions. If the Lord is God, follow him. 
But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. That's the problem. They just make a choice. Now, here's the problem that we have. You may not think that you have that problem. So you're like, listen, I, I don't bow down and worship idols. And I commend you for that, honestly, because most people throughout history have. So good for you for not doing that. I have come across instances of people that do things like that. And it'd surprise you. There are some things that Christians do where they don't maybe realize that what they're doing is a more religious and spiritual practice than they thought at first. Astrology, for example. But then there are some times where people think, well, just a little on the side is okay. But here's what you need to realize. Secularism is the idolatry of our day. The belief in no God. Or at least that life should be lived apart from the thought of God. That's the idolatry of our day. And how you feel about incorporating aspects of secularism into your life is how the Israelites felt about incorporating aspects of idolatry into their life. You see it as so normal. What does God have to do with politics? What does God have to do with business? What does God have to do with my dating life? I believe in Jesus, but this is the way everybody does it, and you really don't need God for that piece. That's how we think, and you see that as natural, but that's your cultural conditioning. For them and for our brothers and sisters in Nepal, they see it as like, you're telling me you don't think that the gods have anything to do with politics? You would engage in a marriage relationship without invoking the blessings of the river and the sky to, to be there and protect you? You would go about your business without going through the good luck charms to make sure you make some good money that day? It's the same thing. No gods is just as evil as many gods because there is only one God. And any deviation from that is the problem. Now all of a sudden this chapter seems a lot more serious because a lot of times I'll tell you what, here's a little insight into my heart. I have a feeling that Half of what I do is just stand up and tell people, follow Jesus more. And sometimes like, Tyler, you got to shake it up, man. You got to have a little, like same message, but you got to have, you know, a different angle and stuff. But, but then I come back to passages like this and I realize, because that's still what we need to hear. Yeah. We still need to hear that. Yeah. Jesus did not put up with people following him halfway. Jesus is like, I don't want fans. I want disciples. I don't want admirers. I don't want followers. I want disciples. Following Jesus Christ is not a matter of preference. You know, of all the world religions, I really like Jesus the most. How kind. <laughs> but that's not what this is. This is total submission to another in every way of life. And Joshua gives us two attributes of this, if you were looking closely. He says, in sincerity and in faithfulness. Sincerity. You know the Latin word for sincere means without wax. Need I say more? Yeah, I probably should, huh? <laughs> like, I don't get that. Yeah, no, you don't. All right. Sincere. What does this mean? Well, you know that they really liked their statues back in Greco-Roman times, right? Now, let's get to the real world here and come out of the art museum. Every now and then, you're carrying in a statue, and what happens to the nose? It's knocked off or a finger gets knocked off, or you chip a knee or something. Now, these things are expensive, and they take a long time to fix. So what would you do? You would take wax, you would mix it with the chalk and with the dust, and you would put the nose back on. 
However, it obviously is not worth as much as something that was sincere, without wax. It was pure marble. So, sincere. Is your love for Jesus like that? Is it without any dilution, any mixture? Is it that hard one, carefully crafted by the Holy Spirit in His image? Or are you trying to mix in other stuff with it? Because guess what? If it breaks once, it's going to break again. But you else have one of those things in your house? Don't slam the door too hard or you got to put that brick back in the wall. That's true love and loyalty for the Lord. This is not just a social preference. It's not just an appreciation for Christian morality. I almost would rather there be a hostility towards Christian morality. Because as Jesus said, I wish you were hot or cold. Because then I can do something. At least we can talk. At least you can engage in the Spirit. Sincerity means a guileless devotion to God. You're not in it for anything you can get out of it. You're in it because you love Him. You've got to be the one in your life who actually believes this stuff. That's my definition of evangelical. What's the difference between an evangelical Christian and other Christians? We actually believe this stuff. Yes, the symbols are true. Yes, the morals are true. But this is actually true too. A real man named Jesus really died on a real cross and really rose from a real grave in a real body and really ascended to a real place named, called heaven where he really sat down at a real God named Jehovah who is really his father and he's really his son. Like, seriously, there's nothing behind the words. Sincerity. And then also faithfulness. What does faithful mean? To keep on trucking. To keep on going. Abide in Christ. Don't stop. Do it forever. Nothing stops you. Be faithful all the days of your life. Nobody wants a spouse who is usually faithful. <laughs> or mostly, mostly faithful. Look, I try very hard, and most of the time, I do a great job. We're laughing because we expect perfect faithfulness from each other. How much more so than our faithfulness to the Lord Jesus? We excuse our sin like it's just normal when we're expected to be more faithful to our Lord. So many folks have a belief in Jesus, but they say, I want to establish my life first. And what they mean by that is, I want to establish my life in sin. And then once I've got it set up the way I want, and I've kind of had my fun, and I've had a few women, I've made some money, and I've passed out drunk a few times, then, okay, now I'm ready to settle down, buy a house, have some kids, and start going to church. How insulting to our Lord. Or, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold on to Jesus, because I really ain't got nothing going for me in life. But if that ever changes, I'm going to set Jesus aside. You see those people in church, man. People that are at church because they really would like a boyfriend. And they say, I'm just really not feeling loved in my life, so that's what I need Jesus for, to tell me how much he loves me. But then the second you get a boyfriend, bye. I, I still believe. I, yeah, I'm still a Christian. But where'd you go? The answer is they were following Jesus to have this specific need met. And the minute they found they could meet it somewhere else, they left. As John the Apostle said, they went out from us because they were never of us. Jesus in Luke 16, 13 said, No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and... Now he says God and money, God and mammon. But you can just put a dot, dot, dot there. You cannot serve God and anything else. Fill in the blank. 
whatever it might be for you. You cannot do it. You ever have more than one job and get scheduled at the same time on the same day? It's rather hard to serve two masters, isn't it? Rather hard to wait tables and make sandwiches at the same time. Either hate the one or love the other. When I was working two jobs, I was part-time at the church and I was part-time at Ruby Tuesday. Occasionally, they kind of knew, but occasionally they'd just see if they could push their luck and they would schedule me on a Sunday morning. So you know what would happen? I'd make a phone call and say, I can't serve two masters and you're the one that I despise. <laughs> you can't serve two masters. And here, let me say something to you. I know you struggle with this and sometimes maybe you feel like you're just... You feel like I, I've just got nothing going for me. If you know in your heart that you're trying to serve two masters, let me ask you a question. Which one do you despise? Do you hate Jesus for making you do this? Or do you hate your sin that takes you farther away from Jesus? Be comforted by that fact. That shows you which one you really belong to. But let it also encourage you to say, just stop. Let's just see what life would look like if we actually walked with Jesus the way we know we're supposed to. That's what he tells him. As for me and my house... We will serve the Lord. And y'all know a house is the, is the old-fashioned term. In America, we, we had such a, like the pioneer society and everything really kind of broke down the idea of the household, where you had, you know, grandfather and then the sons and then their sons and like everybody was at the same hold. It's a very ancient, like I think Anglo-Saxon term of the hold, where this is where we defend ourselves, this is where we eat, this is where we farm, this is where we live. And it's not that our culture is any worse off for it, but it tells us that Joshua is taking responsibility, not just for himself, not even just for himself and his wife, but for himself, his wife, his children, their children. He says, as long as I'm alive, this family is serving the Lord. I hope that we can all have that same attitude. Verse 16. Then the people answered, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who did those great signs in our sight, and preserved us in all the way that we went, and among all the peoples through whom we passed. But, and the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore we also will serve the Lord, for He is our God. Now you might say, good, that's great, and it is great. But look at verse 19. But Joshua said to the people, I don't believe you. You are not able to serve the Lord. For he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve Him. And they said, We are witnesses. He said, Then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, The Lord our God we will serve and His voice we will obey. <laughs> I love old man Joshua. We're going to serve the well, core. What do you think? We're going to walk away from the Lord. We're going to serve them. Goes, no, you won't. No, you won't. Don't, don't you know who you're dealing with? The holy God, the jealous God. He might have been the only one that remembered Mount Sinai. 
I remembered when God came down on the mountain in fire and thunder and smoke. And don't get up on that mountain because if you do, you'll die. And then heard the voice of God like a trumpet sounding out from that mountain. He goes, don't you know who you're talking about? He reminds them that God is jealous, that God will not share his glory and his love with them. That's their problem. As I said, the problem with them is not that they didn't want to serve the Lord, it's they wanted to serve the Lord and have these little petty deities that they worshipped as well. He was not worried about their worship per se, but about their plurality of worship. Extra gods, more than one thing receiving praise and worship and devotion from them. Maybe you don't like the idea of God being jealous because you think of envy. Don't think of it like envy. That's the wrong attitude to take. You want your husband, ladies, to be a little jealous for you. Now, when I used to say this to high school girls, they had no idea what I was talking about. But how about this? You're out with your husband and some guy walks up to you and he starts flirting with you and trying to get your number and your husband just kind of stands there and... Just kind of doesn't say anything, and then you walk away, and you say, didn't you see what happened? And he goes, no, whatever. Would you just let that go, ladies? Excuse me? Doesn't that make you angry? Doesn't that make you mad? Why didn't you smack that guy across the face? What are you wanting? You're wanting him to be jealous, not of you, but for you. Back off, dude. That's my wife. What? You don't own her, man. That's like the sleaziest thing the guys say, right? It's like, you don't own her. She can make her own decision. She did make a decision. I'm about to make a decision to pop you in the mouth if you don't back off. <laughs> you know what you're going to get for that, fellas? You're going to get a big fat kiss on the mouth for that is what you're going to get. You want your loved ones to be jealous for you. And God is jealous for you. Consider that. Consider that. He says, you don't know who you're dealing with, guys. Picture the old, the old gnarled prophet standing there. Like, no, Joshua, we will indeed. And he's, his voice is maybe weakened and his body is more frail at this moment. But he says, you don't understand who you're dealing with. He will not share his glory with you. Now we think, well, of course God wouldn't share his glory. But y'all, that's what everybody thought. That every God has to share his glory with the other ones. He is challenging the very root of their culture right now. So when they insist, we're going to serve the Lord. We are making the choice today. He goes, honest? They go, honest. Cross my heart and hope to die. He goes, fine. Then get rid of all your foreign idols. Put your money where your mouth is, baby. You're going to consecrate yourselves today. Because if they were unwilling to publicly Put away those foreign gods. He says, then I won't trust you. I don't trust you as far as I can throw you. If you say, no, I'll serve the Lord, but you refuse to take those household idols and burn them in front of everyone. Same is true to you and to me. We'll never please the Lord if we try to serve him, but hold on to those other loves. I'm going to serve Jesus. But you know, I'm trying to find a husband, a wife, and this is just the way it's done now. And I'm just going to have to do it that way. Or I, I'm going to serve Jesus, I know, but nice guys finish last. People that don't lie, that aren't willing to stretch the truth, that don't look out for number one, they end up at the back of the pile. And I'm trying to take care of this family. Yes, I know God is good, but you have to understand the political situation that we're facing. We have to make common cause with these people because we're going to lose our country. 
They're never going to please the Lord that way. Or it could be something even smaller, but it's big to you. The things in your life that have a grip on your love more than anything else. And then Pastor Bill mentioned it Sunday, it could be football or video games or Instagram or your kids, whatever it might be. Those things don't even come second place. God's jealous for you. Second place. Yes, you're my wife and I love you so much. You're, you are number one for sure. You want to know something funny? When Catelyn and I were dating, I used to say something that I thought was very sweet, but I realized that was not the right way to say it. I was learning, right? I said, I would say things like, you're my favorite girl. Now I hear that and all the guys just went, oh, that's so sweet. All the ladies go, favorite? Favorite? I'm your only girl. <laughs> you mean there are others that you have opinions about? Yeah, that wasn't what I meant by it, obviously. But if you're going to follow Jesus, y'all, we're leaving everything else behind. Acts 19.19, 19, this was going on in the church at Ephesus. When the story, you know, the, remember the sons of Sceva? These, these Jewish exorcists that tried to use Jesus' name like a magic charm to cast out a demon. And that demon-possessed dude heard that name and beat the snot out of him and they ran away bleeding and naked. You know what happened? The whole city found out, okay, all the demons are afraid of Jesus. <laughs> so you know what all the Christians did? They said, Paul, I have to confess something. And he goes, what's that? And they pull out from behind their back all their magic books all their charms, all their spells, all the things they've been doing in addition to Jesus Christ. But in Acts 19, 19, it says, a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. How much would 50,000 pieces of silver be worth today? <coughs> Why were these things not sold and given to the poor? I'll tell you, Judas, because it'd be better sacrifice to the Lord to destroy those things than try to give it to somebody else. You may desire to serve the Lord, but are you willing to give up everything you have to follow Him? Lord, let me first go and bury my father. I want to serve you, Jesus, but if my mom knew that I was going to church like this, she'd never let me hear the end of it. My dad would say I'm a sissy boy. My brothers and sisters, they would never want to talk to me again. I have a niece or a cousin that is just really into this anti-God stuff, and I just got to keep it on the down low for right now to preserve my family. Jesus doesn't put up with that. Lord, may I first go say goodbye to my family. Perfectly reasonable request. No, if you're going to keep looking back, you're not ready for the kingdom of God. Lord, I'm going to follow you wherever you go. Okay, I don't have a place to live. I don't have a place to stay. I'm worse off than a fox or a bird. You ready for that? You know what? You're in my prayers. How's that? Jesus commanded and demanded that everybody give up everything to follow Jesus. Other loves and loyalties you have need to die. Stop trying to figure out what's okay. Just do the obviously right thing. Trust Jesus. If you don't feel like you're mature enough to make good decisions in, in terms of your liberties, just do what's obviously right out of love and respect for your Lord Jesus. Remove every obstacle. And that's what they did. Verse 25. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words. Would you underline this? And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. 
And he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. So we're ending this book here with covenant renewal. They're coming back to the Lord. This is also how Deuteronomy ended. We're bringing the people back before the old leader passes on and says, please, I'm not going to be there to look out for you anymore. Promise me you're going to keep serving God. And it says that Joshua wrote these words. We spent an extensive amount of time talking about this at the beginning of the book. We believe that Joshua is the author of the book of Joshua. I don't have such a big problem with the idea that it might have been updated when it still say things like, to this time, or it'll, it'll give the, the names of places that seem to have come into effect later. But if <laughs> I'm willing to default back to the, the tradition rather than people's reconstructions of the book, we know for a fact that it was completed before the reign of David because it references things that happened before that. The canon of Scripture was already being used as Scripture well before there was any counsel to completely affirm it and determine it. What's the good news for us from this section? We're talking about making the right choice, following Jesus. We're talking about going all in, getting rid of any of our obstacles, remembering how good it was. Here's the good news. God will accept your choice. If you say, God, I've messed up, but I'm going to start following you today, do you know that Jesus will say, okay, come on. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you might find. No, <laughs> and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Oh, that's for holy rollers. No, Jesus said, for everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. does not matter how far you have fallen this week. Two weeks ago, I was doing good, but man, it's amazing how bad things can go in four days. God is ready to renew His covenant with you today. If He wasn't, you wouldn't be here listening to this right now. This is God talking to you. Lord, give me a sign. Here's your sign, friends. You may have been insincere in your love for God up till now. You maybe have been unfaithful in your love for God up till now, but he's calling for you to come back this very day. What is the posture of God when a sinner repents? We always think of like the halls of heaven that go up to the sky and you're kind of creeping along like this and there's like 20 foot angels stirring down at you like that. And, you know, there's the Lord on his throne like, well, well, well. I've just been watching this videotape here of what you've been doing the last few weeks. What do you have to say for yourself? You know who talks like that? Satan does. Your accuser does. In Luke 15, 20, when the prodigal son decided to return home, he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion, and ran, and embraced him, and kissed him. That's the posture of God towards a sinner who repents. It doesn't matter if you have been hoarding idols in your house. God is saying, get rid of them things and give me a hug. 
I'm ready to have you back today, God says. I could never come back. It's, it's too far. Well, you start walking and your father will run the rest of the way and meet you along the road. He'll fall on your neck. He'll kiss you. He'll put a ring on your finger and a robe. He'll throw you a party and kill the fatted calf. And never mind those stuffy Christians that think, well, I've been around here doing the right thing and no one throws a party for me. The Lord goes, would you shut up and just be happy for the fact that your brother or sister who was dead is now alive again? There is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than all the righteous people who have ever lived. We get excited reading about Joshua, Moses, Daniel, David, John the Baptist. You know what heaven gets excited about? Saul of Tarsus. He was a sinner. He was killing Christians. He didn't know, though. Christians can still pray once they get to heaven. And like, you know who needs to get saved? This guy right here. And now he's got an army of people praying for him on both sides. They get excited about guys like Nanda, our missionary in Nepal. Communist, revolutionary, violent man. Hindu priest in training. And now he teaches pastors to follow Jesus. He gets excited about the John Newtons of the world. The slave ship captains that become preachers and disciple young men that put an end to the slave trade entirely. That's what heaven gets excited about. So don't think here, you've got to just be quiet and keep your sins to yourself or people get angry at you. The Lord is rejoicing and says, let's write it in a book. Let's set up a monument. Let's declare a national holiday and celebrate for we once were blind, but now we see. Joshua in the Old Testament prefigures the Joshua of the New Testament. Our Yeshua, our Jesus, Jesus, our Lord Jesus Christ, whose very name means salvation, who came to seek and to save the lost. Not just to stand there with a sign, free salvation, but to go out looking for you. How many of you can say, I didn't find Jesus. He came looking for me. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's our God. Don't be ashamed. We won't shame you. Jesus won't shame you. Satan will. But who cares what he thinks? Let's come back to the Lord and bring it to the end of their book in verse 29. After these things, Joshua, the son of Nun, underline it, the servant of the Lord died being 110 years old. The apostles might have said he fell asleep. And they buried him in his own inheritance at Timnath Serah, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountains of Gaash. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. As for the bones of Joseph, because I know you were worried about that, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem. And the piece of land that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money, it became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph. And Eleazar, the son of Aaron, died, and they buried him at Gibeah, the town of Phinehas, his son, which had been given him in the hill country of Ephraim. So Joshua dies at 110 years old, the same age that Joseph died, and 10 years younger than Moses was when he died. And what is so significant about verse 29, in chapter 1, verse 1, Moses was called the servant of the Lord. Joshua was called the servant of Moses. But now we come to the end of it, and Joshua is also given that same title, the servant of the Lord. He passed on. Eleazar, Aaron's son, perished. Joseph's bones were laid to rest. There's a picture of a faithful generation passing on. You could call this Israel's greatest generation. 
the ones that believed the Lord. They weren't like their fathers who got, they got exodus but they died in the wilderness because they had no faith. These were the ones that had enough faith to get into that promised land and take it at the edge of the sword by faith in the Lord. Have you ever considered, guys, how your story will end? What are they going to say about you when they lay you down to rest? It's coming. You know it's coming. Might be sooner rather than later for some of y'all. I pray that you will choose to follow the Lord and be remembered as the one in your family who entered that promised land, took hold of it by faith, and handed it off to your family forever. The one who said, I'm not going to settle for the way life is without Jesus. And I'm not even going to settle with a halfway, I'm saved, but that's just about it, life. I'm going to conquer these giants, tear down some cities, and establish the reign of Jesus Christ in my life and in my family, and teach my children and their children to do the same thing, so that when I die, people will have nothing more to say than the servant of the Lord. Proverbs 13, 22, talking about money, but it says, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. But the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. Is there anything better you could hand off to your kids than the gospel? It's great to teach them how to throw a baseball. That's good. It's important. It's great to teach them how to be smart in school and get good grades. That's maybe a little more important. It's great to teach them to be respectful and to work hard and to stand up straight and to treat their husbands and wives properly and to teach them how to raise good children in due time, how to manage their money, all those things. But there's nothing more important than the gospel. I'll tell my kids sometimes when we're sitting with the Bible, we're reading it, and we don't do like those regular family devotions. They happen regularly, but it's not like a scheduled time, you know? But I'll tell them, guys, this is more important than anything else. And they, you know, hear that and say, okay, Daddy. But one of these days, that's going to ring in their ears when they get a little older. There's just nothing more important than this. Don't wait until it's too late. Don't wait until you've already lived your life, to say, now it's time to start serving the Lord. Because I'm glad that you're here, but I do not envy you the regret you're going to have to carry. Why? I, I had half a century where I could have been doing this. I could have been serving Jesus all this time. Yeah, you could have. And there's no shame in that. But there's shame if you put it off knowing full well what you're doing. Today, you have a choice to make. To consecrate yourself and serve the Lord. I know I will. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord.